Hey, this is Ron Young with Little Caesar. You're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Scott Thompson here, ready to bring you your weekly dose of Focus on Metal. We've got a pretty cool guest in store for you this week as we bring you a talk with Ron Young, the vocalist of Little Caesar. And, uh, you know, these guys really aren't metal, and uh, for a lot of people, they don't even think of them as much as hard rock either. But uh, definitely a guy who's been uh, through the ringer here in the music business, has a great talk with Richie, not only about their brand new album, Eight, but also about uh, their adventures in music all the way uh, through the 90s and some good stuff on Little Mountain Sound and Bob Rock. And so, um, yeah, just uh, an interview that kind of went everywhere. And it's it's interesting, too, because this is supposed to be just one of those quickie 20-minute interviews. And it ends up that uh, Ron spent about an hour with Richie and uh, really got into some stuff. And uh, kudos to Richie for really uh, bringing out some great questions. And it was pretty obvious that Ron was enjoying the conversation. And uh, that is what we like to do here at Focus on Metal. And for those of you that are looking for the metal, I uh, promise you that uh, next week some good stuff on the way as far as straight out metal as we bring you talks with Michael Sweet and Gus G. So with so much talk in so little time, what do you say we get into it? Ron? Yes, it is. Rich, how you doing? Hey, Ron. How you doing? You're pretty yeah, jet. Man. You must be jet. You must be jet lagged, are you? Oh, dude, I'm fucking toast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm toast. It's... Yeah, it's just you do these runs, and bad enough with the jet lag and everything else. I mean, it's hard enough like if we've been treated nicely, but we're beating the shit out of ourselves. And it's the weather and the food and all this stuff. It's just get home and it's like, holy shit, man! I'm not as resilient as I think I am or used to be. You know? Yeah. And it's a it, it's a big wake up call, man. It's like yeah. um, I went over there and I had bronchitis for like six weeks before I even left. And I just couldn't kick it. And then we get over there, and we had like the worst weather in 30 years. And the bass player, he came back. Now he's all on steroids, and he's at the doctors. And it's just like, man, just kick for a house. You know? Yeah. You can probably tell I'm from Ireland, right? So I knew about the storm. All my family are all over there, all my friends, right? And when I was, when I was offered to interview you, I knew where you were. And, and and then right, I was so you could ask right you, you yeah. have some background it's, it's the beast from the east yeah, yeah it's storm Emma or whatever they were calling it and they I, they were sending me pictures and I was like holy shit because I like I'll be honest with you I'm about thirty miles north of Boston and we've had about a foot and right, a half so, of snow so you, today so you guys get used to that kind of stuff yeah but when you go yeah, over okay. when you go when you go over there they have no <laughs> idea what to do they have no plan no, no plows no nothing. No, they just figure, you know what, we'll deal with it, we'll be shut down for a few days, and we'll get over it. And literally, one of the one of the drives we had to do, we had to follow a salt truck up the M6 or whatever it was. That was the only way we would get to the next town. Yeah. Because they shut down the airports, the railway stations. You know, people don't realize that out in, out in the areas, it's, you know, it's a lot of farming communities and stuff. And they're like, oh, well, we'll just wait till it melts. <laughs> you know, it's like... It's about all you can do. Yeah, I know, I know you had to cancel a gig because you got food poisoning. But did you play the rest of the gigs? Yeah, we did. Um, 
it was actually, I think on the whole run, we canceled two shows, one for weather, one because my digestive tract. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was really kind of shocked because it, it was, it, you know, and, and again, these are the things you just kind of, you got to just roll with it and not get upset about it. But, you know, weather, you can't control it. But, you know, we were excited about a whole bunch of these shows and we had so many people that we've become good friends with on Facebook and stuff that I was looking forward to seeing. And they just, you know, they're all saying, oh, I got tickets, but I can't, I, you know, I can't leave, I can't leave my house. We're, we're snowed in. And I mean, there was a couple of gigs, you know, we look out the window and it's like the, the snow is going sideways and it's freezing cold in the, in the club and it's freezing cold everywhere. It's like you go into stores and people are wearing their outerwear because, you know, a lot of these buildings, people in America don't realize some of these buildings are from the 1600s. Oh yeah, and they don't really have, they don't have the infrastructure to deal with you know really fast blowing wind and really cold temperatures and it's it, it's rough <laughs> you know so it was it was interesting to say the least. You know? Yeah, they didn't have central heating around in the 1600s to put into the walls. No, <laughs> exactly, and they didn't they didn't really put double pane retrofitted glass. Um, you know, into into these buildings so that they'd be efficient during one of the worst storms in 30 years. So, guess who shit gets to sit around and freeze their ass off? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I got to sing, and I'm like, I don't know. I'm, like, a couple of shows I'm singing, and my glasses are getting fogged up because it's so cold in the room while I'm singing that it, the steam is coming up out of my mouth and making my, I had to wipe my glasses off. Wow. Like, that's wow. that's this insane. Is, this is interesting. Yeah, this is interesting. Yeah. 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 <laughs> now, w- was the UK one of the markets that really got you early on in the band's career? Because I give it like another band like King's X, they always said that the UK got what they were about early on and embraced them. Was that the UK like that for you guys? Definitely. I, mean, I remember distinctly that when things were going rough over here in the States, mostly because of the business and all that behind-the-scenes crap that plagued us early on in our early career, um, it, it it was really invigorating when we got on a plane and we came over there and we played like the Marquee in London and we got out and did these shows and the enthusiasm for the band and the appreciation for the band was much greater than it was in the States. But, you know, what people don't realize is that you know, the whole embracing soul music and blues music was very much in the UK. Um, people were a lot more passionate about Motown and Stacks and Bolt, Stacks Bolt stuff and blues and the guitar players and the great English and British and UK bands that, you know, that, that grabbed onto that music with a lot more passion than they did here in the States. And that never left. And there's a certain thing, and I don't know if it's a, like people that are like into football and stuff over there. When they're a fan, man, they're a fan. They don't mess around, you know. And they get really committed to to something. And if the band is loyal to them and sincere to them, you got a fan for life. As long as you don't mess that up, they're there for you. And we really appreciate that. And and I don't know, I don't know if it's because American culture is more disposable or they have so many things that they can let it go and pick up something else and be fickle. 
But that's not the case over there. And and that's one of the reasons why we love going over there. And it, that hasn't changed. Yeah, I think I can only speak for myself, Ron. When I was growing up, um, a lot of the bands that were huge in in, in America, the, the hard rock bands, they were they were getting no airplay in England because the radio didn't play that sort of stuff. So a lot of them never came over there. So when the bands actually made the effort to come over, the, that's when the fans really embraced them. They said, right, these guys actually give a crap about us because you could tour right. the States for months on end and the management might say, right, this is where we're going to make the money. But it was the bands that actually traveled over the water were the ones that got the fans. Yeah. Definitely. And, and, you know, same thing like if it's up in Ireland, because Ireland's not easy to get to. You know, you got to take a ferry. It, logistically, for a band that's traveling, the band's got to really respect the, the fans there. It, it's not just like you get in a bus and you just go like it is here in the States. And so I, I can see that, and it's still that way now. And I also think that there's a, like a blue-collar working mentality that, it's so prevalent there that, you know, the bands that are out there and working hard and really sincerely putting themselves out there to the fans, I think that there's a, a connection there that's that's really revered um, more so than here, you know. Is it? Do you think it's easier for you now to, to get a run of shows in the UK than it is in the US? Oh, yeah, uh, definitely, because... There's logistical problems here in the States of just distance and diluted markets and apathy. Um, what I find, another thing that I think is very um, kind of unique, people over there, they, they don't want to download a song and put it on a mechanical device. They want a CD. They want vinyl. They, they want bigger graphics. They want to know more, hold more, be more connected to it. Um, they're not into this one download on Spotify thing. And I think that that um, is emblematic of, of a bigger thing and a bigger connection. And I think in the States, uh, I just think it's something cultural that that's here that it, it makes it really hard, unless you're a really big band, to get out there and, you know, all the time on Facebook, come play Tampa. Like, I'm going to get on a plane and just go down and play Tampa. <laughs> you know? yeah. like, that's a major production where a band could jump in a van and go up to Glasgow from London and go from Glasgow to, to Dublin. You know, they can pull something like that off. I can't just go to Boston and do a one-off show without... It's got to be really big, you know? And so I, I think a lot of that comes into play and has a, a long-lasting effect. Yeah, well, you're not going to come up to Boston in this weather anyway, Ron. You won't get here. I'm <laughs> <laughs> get, get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you bring up an interesting point, and I, I've said this on the show for years. You, you'll post tour dates on your Facebook page or your website, and everyone will start asking you to come to places, and it's call your promoter. The promoter books the band. You'd, all, you'd love to come yeah, to all these exactly. places. Exactly. And you know what? It's funny because we, you know, behind the scenes, we talk about that. It's like part of it is kind of it's endearing because you know these people are just saying, "Please, you know, come to my town." But you, you don't want to get out there and try, try to start explaining to them how the music business works. That you know, you sit there and you want to say to somebody, you know, when you go to that concert and you stick it on Facebook Live and you're not 
like we, we have this song time enough for that the new single and the song is about being in the moment and every single night from stage i make it a point to sincerely tell people that there's listening to music and then there's the, there's making music and making music for us the magic is being in a room with a certain group of people on that one night at that one moment in time that will never happen again and we have an incredible reverence for that and energy that we get back you don't get energy any energy back when you're in a recording studio or a rehearsal studio but you do it a live thing and each one has its own personality each night has its own vibe and magic that happens sometimes it's great sometimes it's not but that's a special event that we give reverence to and so when you get out there and these people are standing there with their phone to show everybody their venue, they're disconnected from the experience. And they're Facebook-living it. And there's people that just go, eh, I'm not going to get in the car. I'm going to sit in my underwear and scratch my ass, and I'll watch 10 minutes on Facebook Live. And, you know, it's cheaper and it's easier. And it's not really helping the bands. It's not really helping music. And it's a trend that's happening in technology that I think is kind of ruining and demystifying and taking that magic away. And I think people need to make a real concerted effort to stay committed to that, to their own best interest if they really, if they really care about live music, you know, or music in general. Yeah, you you're, you bring up the live experience there. Do you prefer that than creating the music then? Oh, yeah. Make, create, making records, I, I don't, it doesn't mean much to me at all. <laughs> it's, a, it's a means to an end to go play in front of people. Okay. Um, it's a sterile kind of situation. I I don't consider myself an artist, you know. Um, I, I, you know, singing a song um, in a studio, in a controlled environment, it's a sterile environment. It starts to become molecules. It starts to become very analytical. It's just part of that process. And once you get it down and you go through everybody putting their input in two cents and you make a final mix, and there you go. That's your recorded piece of music. Then when you take it out and you play it every night, the combination of the energy of the people in the room and the energy between the band members, that gives it a new life every single night. And... To me, that's way more precious and way more magical than creating something in studios. Yeah. So how do you feel then about the way it's gone with musicians sharing files? They're not even in the same state recording albums. Well, you know, recording music is a pretty sterile process for the most part anyway. Um, We've always had battles with producers to try to do records. The records I love you know, from the late 60s to, you know, late 70s, were way more of a live, a real live experience of people playing live in a room. And when it got toward the 80s and the 90s, it became a very produced and controlled, uh, almost sterile process that I think took out so much personality of records. You know, Rolling Stones records and Bad Company records, you can close your eyes, you can see the squeak of the drum pedal. And all of that was starting to get taken out of music and technology certainly today is not helped that. And, you know, so there's a benefit to be able to use technology if you use it just for the ease of 
you know, like if I wanted to create something with Adrian Vandenberg or something, hey, I have this file, you send it to me, and I can drop it into a computer, and it sounds like I'm in the room, and I could record on it and send it back. There's some good aspects of that, but there's a lot of people, I think, that are becoming enslaved by it, and the technology is kind of ruining some of the organic and honest and warmth that, that used to be in records that the technology and the process that's being used with the technology, I think is kind of, you know, taking a lot of personality out of recorded music. Now. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the new, the new album eight. Um, is it, is it easy to keep the, the core sound of the band when you're changing musicians every so often and you get new players in? Um, it, it is. It's the nucleus of the band stays intact. Me, Lauren, and Tom, um, you know, we, we lost one guitar player right after the first record. So that's been like this rotating position that we've never been able to like completely nail down. And we finally did when Mark joined the band. And that's what made me decide it's time to go make another record. Because I told, I told Lauren and Tom, I was like, listen, man, until we get this fifth guy, because to me, a band is a band. It should be five guys and they're all contributing and you let their personality come through. And I was missing that for a number of years. And even way back to the Earl Slick days, I always knew that he was kind of in the band until David Bowie called again, you know? <laughs> it's just, yeah. unless we got real big. Because <laughs> he's a professional musician and he's got bills to pay and he's got a career of his own to, to nurture. So over the years, I started to lose my patience with, you know, it's like, okay, well, let's go make a record and we have to core the guys together. Um, and then because of just life and everything, we, we lost, you know, Fidel left the band, the bass player, because he just got too busy to be able to kind of do all the stuff we needed to do. And I had played with Pharaoh in the Four Horsemen for a while. Um, when Frank got into his accident and I did a tour with them up in Canada. And he just very much same, you know, had the same passions and the same types of music with a great vocal range and, he, he he came in and plugged in great, you know, perfectly. But yeah, it was it was kind of getting rusty for a while to to keep it, you know, keep it true and to keep a consistency. But like I said, fortunately, we always had the core members to keep it on track. Yeah, yeah. Now, a lot of bands would say over the years that the first song written for the record really sets the direction for the whole album. You remember what the first song was? On this album, no, because what's weird about it is uh, it was starting to get pretty tense because I refused to go in and start a record until we got a guitar player. And I knew who was going to write, contribute, and be the fifth guy on the record. And so Lauren kept writing. You know, usually what happens is Lauren writes chord changes or he has a riff idea and he sticks them on his phone and he sends them to me. And I'm like, okay, great. When we start making a record, I'll get to this. And he was starting to get really pissed off at me about it because I was just kind of putting it into a big bag and letting it sit. And I think the, the one that we've had to the longest on this record was Crush Velvet. We've been playing that song for like five years now. Okay. And it was getting to the point of, well, I hope that when we get in the studio, we can actually give it life because we kind of were getting so comfortable with it that I was starting to feel like, are we almost taking it for granted? And fortunately, when Mark came in, he he had some great little slide parts that were completely inspirational, and it kind of made us, you know, get it up again for that. 
And the rest of it was all kind of written within. We, we dug in, you know, we kind of sat in a room playing. I remember that. Holy shit. I think I'm all about that one, you know? Hmm. And we kind of jumped on it and everything came together so nicely. I mean, we did the whole record maybe 20 days, 22 days. And that wasn't even full days. That was like starting at five at night and working until like 11, 12. So it was a really quick process, which I think is good. Um, you know, it, it sometimes for a lot of bands, it becomes molecules. And when it becomes molecules, it's not music anymore. And bands have to be careful of that. Yeah, the, the 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 song I love, like time enough for that, is the first single. I think that's excellent. But the, the other track that I love, Ron, is uh, "Morning." Thanks. Those are like two of my favorite. I'm always a sucker for the soulful, ballady type, slower, expressive things. And um, Pharaoh actually wrote all of this. That's time enough for that. Oddly enough, is the first original Little Caesar composition that I didn't write the lyrics for. And I was kind of, when Pharaoh came in and said, hey man, I hope you don't mind, but I wrote that song that we've been working on. I wrote lyrics for it. And the first thing I remember is like, oh God, please don't make them be stupid. Please don't make them be stupid. (laughs) I got to sing them and I got to deliver them. (laughs) And they were really very um, intelligent and reflective and soulful. And I was like, thank God I've got an intelligent adult writing in the band. It wasn't like, you know, look at my bulge or we're going to rock you till the wheels come off or some stupid trite thing. <laughs> I think he wrote something that really fit the emotion of the song. And he's a very talented and smart guy. So I was like, oh, dude, those are great words. Thank you. <laughs> you know, so, and Morning was kind of, Morning is a tongue-in-cheek um, a message for me about politics and our society at this point where I'm just getting really sick of how crazy people are getting and how bad it's getting out there with people picking one side or the other and what it's doing to us as people and as a society. And it's kind of in a vague kind of way. If you ever look at anything I write on Facebook, a lot of times I get into a lot of trouble because I'm talking shit about certain people that are out there in the public eye, mostly politics and stuff, and pointing out how stupid and crazy it's getting. So that was my little sort of tongue-in-cheek, um, you know, metaphor of what's going to happen if we just wash all this away and try to get back to being sane, civil adults to each other. Yeah, yeah, and like there's some great rockers on this as well. I love Vegas, and uh, 21 Again is a great song too. Thank you. Yeah, those are, um, um, it's funny because this record is a little bit more up-tempo than we usually normally do. We're more of like a mid-tempo kind of rock band, and there's some pretty bouncy tracks on this record. You know, it's it's interesting because I just kept coming up with stuff that were really kind of rocking and bouncy, and um, and I'm grateful for that because, um, you know, as you get older, you don't want to just be this inward, plotty band. <laughs> you know, you gotta try to get some excitement in there. And, uh, yeah, you know, 21 again has got a great sort of, uh, kind of almost punky sort of energy. And Vegas is my sort of, that's, I, I always try to, pay tribute to Bon Scott in some way and ACDC and 
for me, Bon Scott was like a master of tongue-in-cheek humor. Um, you know, they were total cock rockers, but he wrote some really brilliant, introspective, simple, and funny lyrics that really show how intelligent he was. Um, working in a very sort of, you know, brain-dead format. <laughs> this mm-hmm. rock and roll, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you know, like she had the body of Venus with arms. I mean, I just love that imagery. It's like very, very clever uh, in pointing out the absurdities of rock and roll. And, and and as I get older and try to not be moronic and try to be a little bit more intelligent in a genre that's really not meant to be any highbrow thing, I try to find the brilliance in that sort of double entendre, you know, clever way of putting something and, and being don't not taking yourself so damn seriously, you know. Yeah, d- does lyric writing come easy to you? It does. It comes very easy to me. Um usually for me the tough part is just getting started. Trying to listen to a piece of music and seeing what is the music evoking me? You know, what sort of emotion will make sense? What will be a subject matter that makes sense over this musical energy? And once I kind of feel that out, it comes pretty quickly. And then from there, I try to write words that are rhythmically complementary to what's happening underneath it musically. Um, I never understood how people could write lyrics first and then plug it into a song. It, it, it just seems completely opposite to me to be something musical or fluid. But some people are more poets than they are lyricists. And but that never worked for me. Okay, so there's probably going to be a song on the next album called Beast from the East, then. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's funny because he, he wrote that song, Hard Rock Hell, that was on American Dream, the last studio record. Yeah. And it was inspired by the Hard Rock Hell Festival in Wales, which we just played at last, you know, a few days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, because um, our bass player got really sick and he never went to the doctor. And he let himself get so sick that they wouldn't even let him on the plane. And we all got really pissed off about it. And it just kind of, it was kind of like one of the many spinal tap moments that we had. And it was so inspiring. I wrote a song based on what we went through in general called Hard Rock House. Well, that's a good title right there. Yeah. Now, now Ron, I'm a huge fan of the Manic Eden album. And thank you. I've had Adrian Vandenberg on a couple of times, but I've never had anyone else on in the band. So now that I have you on, can you tell me how you ended up playing in Manic Eden? Well, that was interesting. I got a phone call one day um, from a mutual friend that was saying, you know, those guys, they got, they put this project together and it was supposed to be um, with James, um, James Christian from uh, House of Lords. And, they were going in and starting to do some recording and the guys in the band didn't think it was really, especially Adrian. He wanted to really do a very bluesy, progressive bluesy kind of record. And so we, they were recording not far from my house. And I just went down to the studio, rehearsal studio and Adrian showed me some of the song ideas and I started singing on there like me. And that's exactly what we were hoping to hear on this stuff. Would you be interested in doing it? And I'm like, of course. You know, because they were really good, especially, you know, remember at the time it was the big grunge explosion. 
And so to have guys like Adrian Vandenberg, who were more, you know, they were more known for like riffing and, you know, sort of this majestics, you know, kind of rock stuff. And here's Adrian kind of doing Stevie Ray and Wes Montgomery and Jimi Hendrix. And he's really letting his blues out of them. And I'm like, wow, that's great, you know. And, you know, and to keep it a three-piece, it was really just a very stripped down and and really right to the point kind of record. And and I was like, man, this this would be a great thing to do and a great record. So we went in and we did the record and then, you know, we started it was originally just for JVC records in Japan and then Adrian was gonna take it out and bring it to all these other labels around the world and he got out and everybody was like, Nobody wants to hear White Snake with this kind of not really famous singer in front of it. And, Adrian's like, listen to it. You know, yes, no, no, no. And he, he, we all got really frustrated. It's like if it wasn't draped in flannel and coming from Seattle, nobody wanted to hear it, you know? Hmm. And it was really kind of a frustrating thing. And we went out and did some promotion, and, you know, we kind of sitting there scratching our heads, just kind of shocked at what the record business had turned into. And then, you know, Bill started adding up and Adrian went back to playing with, with David and, and, you know, Rudy, um, Rudy kind of went back to doing, I think it was maybe Quiet Riot at the time. And it just kind of fell apart. But, you know, we all got along great and it was really so much fun doing that. It was fun making music with them. I really, I wish it would have went further. Um, just from the musical side of things. Because uh, it was a really great musical collaboration. They're all super nice guys. And Adrian's just a sweetheart. And he's a talented artist. You know, like he did the cover. Just a super talented guy. And they're all really down to earth. And it was really refreshing to do that. And uh, really proud of that record. It, it was really a fun thing to do. Yeah, it's interesting you bring it up, you know, that it's a stripped down blues album. When you look at the grunge music, that was like completely the opposite to all the glossy yes. overproduced stuff and then you come out with the same record and the labels are going no I'm not touching you yeah, yeah. no I remember I remember sitting in a in some record guy's office and we're we're trying to convince him to like just listen to the record it was like you're not even listening to what we're doing he's like it, it, it doesn't even matter about the music we're just going to have such an uphill battle when we show you know, it's basically White Snake with a different singer. That stuff isn't selling. And, like, I, the, the guy leaves the room for a minute, and Adrian's like, does he know how many records White Snake sold? <laughs> like, I'm like, I know. I can't believe that he doesn't even... They just threw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, it's like there's millions between Rudy, Tommy, and Adrian. The number of records that they've sold and the projects they've been involved with, do you think all those fans have just died and gone away and like grown a bow key and put on a flower shirt and thrown away the whole record collection? You gotta be kidding me. Yeah. But that's what was happening. Yeah. We were like kind of shocked, but you know, live and learn. Yeah. How, how close, Ron, did you get to playing an actual show or was it just dead in the water? It was just, we just did, we did a couple of acoustic things over in Europe. We did some acoustic shows together. And some promotional stuff or just me and Adrian playing guitar over Japan. But we never got to fire up the amps and really crank it out and play, bring those songs to life. It was really, really disappointing to me. 
Because yeah. I think we would have been a really great live dance, you know? Yeah, well, I think when you look at the sound of the record, it's just singer, drummer, bass, guitar, no synths, no nothing. So that, that had transformed straight away to the live stage. Yeah, it would have been really easy to play because I thought what they did, they just went in and got some sounds and played. And, you know, it was strange because even when we delivered the record to the Japanese guys, label over in Japan, they were kind of shocked. They were expecting some hard rock record, you know, melodic hard rock record. And even they were kind of scratching their heads. And we're like caught between these two different people where one, the guys that made the record happen and they gave us the funding to let us go in and create this thing wanted a white snake record and then you know when it wasn't a white snake record they were kind of scratching their heads and then when we tried to sell the record to other people and let them listen to it they were like we don't want to hear a white snake record it's like it's not a white snake record (laughs) just man this is strange yeah it's 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 funny but the album adrian did with with David Coverdale in 97, the Restless Heart record, that's a strip down as the Manic Eden record. <laughs> right. You know? I know. It, so, it's, it's, again, one of those things you sit there and you just lay in bed and I laugh, you know? <laughs> you, you, my life is spinal tap, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, 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 I can't leave you go wrong without asking you about working with Bob Rock. We did, um, we, done this, we did a project a couple of years ago on Little Mountain Sound and we had Bob Rock on, and we had all these artists that had recorded with him. And when you did, you know who Bob Rock was when you went up to Little Mountain? Of course, we. You know, Bob hadn't exploded yet. Bob was this really great engineer that engineered some really great records, and he was starting to really come into his own as a producer. And we were having fights with John Collagen at the label because we wanted a, a producer like. Tom Dowd or Ed Stasium. We wanted to do a 70-turn record. We wanted to do a really honest, really warm, really retro kind of record. And John Kaladner was like, well, we can get a bit of that, but, you know, let's meet with some producers. So we were kind of butting heads because we were talking to people with Joe Hardy at GC's Top. That's the stuff we were looking at. And when Bob came in, John had a relationship with him, and we sat down, and Bob was like, you know, man, I would love to make that kind of record. And we're like, okay, we agree on this. So we go up to Little Mount, we start working on it, and all was going really well in the beginning when we were cutting all the tracks. And then all of a sudden, the phone rings, and Bob Rock finds out that Motley Crue went to number one, Dr. Feelgood. And that's not the kind of record we were making, but all of a sudden, now it went from Bob making a Little Caesar record to Little Caesar making a Bob Rock record. Now Bob had a sound he had to protect, and he had a brand he had to build and protect. And that's when it started getting really weird, and we're calling back down to L.A. going, somebody better come up here, because now all of a sudden we're doing a million overdubs, and they're rolling in these 64-track machines, and these keyboards coming out, and background singers coming out, and Bob's getting really anal about tuning, and all of a sudden, everything's got to be perfect and precise, and it was just going to be a sleazy rock record a couple months ago, and now it's going off the rails into turning into a Bob Rock Little Mouth production. And it was a lot of tension and a lot of arguments about what the fuck are we doing now? Mm-hmm. This is not what we talked about. And I don't... I, 
you know, it's weird because we waited a year for Bob. Bob got into a fight with John Kaladner. We were supposed to start the record a year earlier, but they got into a fight over Blue, uh, Blue Murder. And because Bob and John weren't talking, we didn't have a producer. And all of a sudden, the phone rings, oh, we've made up. You're going to work with Bob now. And it's like, well, what did, what did you and Bob have to do with us and our record? But corporate politics, that's just bad winner. So it was kind of a strange experience because we're up there. First of all, we all go up to Vancouver. He didn't come down to us. So here we are up in Vancouver, basically getting into a lot of trouble in all the peeler bars and all the, you know, we, we raised hell up there. In fact, <laughs> they, they cut us off at like all those clubs because, you know, while Bob is in there making the guitar player play the same part 27 times, I'm up there on my motorcycle going up and just hitting the number five and the orange and the drink. <laughs> like, what else are you going to do? We're in Vancouver and I'm away from home. We're getting in trouble and they're calling back home going, you better wrangle your boys. They're getting a little out of hand. So it was a kind of a strange experience. I mean, I, I have a great respect for Bob, but he's more, way more anal retentive and into perfection than I am when it comes to recording music. Um, he's got perfect pitch. And I think there was days the guitar player would be in there playing and playing, and he would just get up and walk in there with a set of wire cutters and cut all six strings off the guitar and go, restring it, retune it. Wow. And it's just like, check. And listen, I, I'm pretty good on hearing stuff that's a little out of tune, a little out of pitch. But it, for him, it's like a curse. It was driving him crazy. And I'm like, Listen to some ACDC records, man. There's some really attitude stuff that they left on the record. And that's the personality coming through of the band. And so it was really kind of weird, you know? Bob seemed to be, you know, we caught him at that moment when he rose to the pinnacle. And it was a really strange time for us because it was completely different than what we thought we were getting into. Yeah, were you amazed when you went into the loading bay and found out that that was the way where they, how they got the drum sound? Yeah, that's he, he was really proud of that. He was going there, and he even took us over. There was a parking structure across the street that they used in the Janie's Got a Gun, you know, that that Janie's Got a Gun. Mm. And they went over and recorded that, and then they ran it back through the loading bay that they were using as the revert tank. And I remember Bob getting really kind of mad at me because I said, you know, Bob, kids don't buy reverbs. And he was like, what are, you, what are you talking about? I said, kids don't give a shit if the drums sound like cannons or any of that stuff. All they want to hear is an honest, great record, a great song recorded really well. And all this other stuff, I, I think, is what's killing music. And, and he didn't really like that. In fact, it got me in trouble when I heard the Blue Murder single, too. I said the same thing to David Geffen and, and John Collagen. And they were like, oh, my God, listen to those sounds. And I'm like, there's no hook in the song. And it was like somebody farted in church, you know. <laughs> I, became the, I became the enemy because I wasn't, I wasn't buying into all that sort of stuff, you know. Um, Little Mountain was a great studio, but it's still in the performance and capturing that. And... You know, really, at the time, Randy Stout, the, the, the engineer, you know, he was doing all of the work. And it was, it was really interesting. And so, um, forgive me if I'm rambling on, but no, I remember no. going up there. And it was really interesting because 
I was waiting to cut vocals, waiting, waiting, waiting. He's doing all this guitar stuff. And I'm like, am I ever going to sing on this record? And he's like, okay, you want to do some vocals? Let's do some vocals. And I could tell he was kind of uncomfortable about starting it. So he brought me in there and I started singing. And he's like, okay, do another pass. And I do another pass. And then let's do another one. I'm like, okay. I'm like, do you have anything to tell me? Do you got any input? And he's like, give me a minute. Silence. And I, I'm like, hey, what's going on? Can somebody, so he goes, come on in the control room. So I went in there and I'm like, what's happening? He goes, well, he goes, let me show you something. He takes me into the tape room and there's reels of tape up on, on the shelf. He goes, you see all of those? Those are all Vince Neal's vocals. I would have him do, because he rolled in a 64-track machine for me to cut vocals. I'm like, look at that. Why do we need so many tracks? He's like, I would have him sing the song 64 times. And then Mandy here would take word after word and take, I would make notes. I cut it down to syllables sometimes. <laughs> take syllable from track 32, take the word devil from track 27, and Randy would piece it all together. And he goes, it became so laborious for me and for him. It wasn't music anymore, but that's what we had to do. And so now you come up here, and I'm just thinking, here we go again. And you go in there, and you do one take, and it's angry. You do one take, and it's mellow. You do one take, and it's on the beat. You do one take, and it's off the beat. And it's all usable stuff, and I'm not used to that. <laughs> so, he goes, so I've been kind of avoiding getting into that again because it's so, it was so frustrating. And I'm like, well, but that's Vince Neal. That's not me. He's like, yeah, but I don't know that till the first day you get in front of that microphone. And so now you're in front of that microphone and it's like, and he just, he, he said, I'm going home. Why don't you work with Randy? Do as many takes as you want to do. Knock yourself out. We'll come in tomorrow and we'll listen to what you got. We'll comp some stuff together. And all of a sudden, I, I cut to all those vocals without Bob. He, he wasn't even there. He just let me do what I wanted to do and then listen to it the next day and he put a compilation together and go, do you like it? And I'm like, yeah, I like what you did. Thanks. And that was it. <laughs> it was like really weird. Yeah. <laughs> so it was kind of, it was the whole, as you can hear, the kind of things that were kind of really weird working with Bob. Great guy, you know, and it's, you know, him and Bruce Allen and that whole sort of, Canadian mafia music scene was kind of weird when we got up there, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ron, was there another band in the in the other studio when you were up there? You remember? I don't remember. I don't remember if there was somebody else up there. Um, I I do, you know, I do remember us pulling into town, and we had the big talk by Bruce Allen, you know, kind of keeping us in check and just kind of people wondering who is this band? You know, remember, you know, before us, it was Aerosmith and Poison and Bon Jovi. It was all these other bands that were working up there. We were like the first not known band to kind of go up and take the little mountain. We were up there for almost six months, which oh, wow. I can't believe to this day. I mean, dude, you have no idea. It was it was going on days of just one rhythm guitar part. I'm like, what is going on? Spending all this money, spending all this time. And we got up there in the summer, and we were there well up to, like, Christmas. And it was really, 
we got into a lot of trouble. <laughs> it was really cold. It was really cold up there too. I'd say. <laughs> yeah, I started out and it was beautiful. It was I was salmon fishing and riding my Harley up to Whistler. And I had a hot rod Challenger I brought up, and then it started getting colder and darker and wetter. <laughs> hmm. like, we went after the change of seasons, and it was like. It was just getting to be way too long, man. Way, way, way too long. Yeah. So, so and, if if that was the thing you learned from doing the first record that you brought onto your other records was I'm not spending that yes. long. That was the main yes. thing you learned. Main thing we learned was this is when it becomes that it's not music anymore. Too much money spent, too much thought going into something that shouldn't be. It's like sitting there and analyzing your last sexual encounter. I should have, I should have went for her plot sooner. I should have started putting pressure here. It's not like that. You, it's what happened. It just happened, and it comes out at the end, and you're sweaty, and it was either good or it wasn't. You can't sit there and turn it into molecules. Yes, it and when we did the second record. You know, we worked with Howard Benson, who wound up becoming really kind of a famous, very successful producer. But honestly, we picked Howard because we thought we could push him around. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we weren't going to go through what we went through with Bob Rock. Yeah. And we, on the record, if you look, it says co-produced by Howard Benson in the band. Okay. And we picked him because we weren't going to get pushed around again. He was going to help us push us in the direction, help us get over the finish line, but we were not going to go through having to bow to the number one producer again, you know, and did, do what he said. Did you hate the first record by the time it came out because it, it was so laborious yes. to make? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I still, I still don't really listen to it. Wow. Um, people think it's, people think it's a really good record. I never wanted Shane Fools even on the record, let alone to be a single. Fools is a cover tune we learned to just form the band because we needed to get to a room and have something to play as a band. And I picked that as a mission statement. If we can take an Aretha Franklin song and do it in a hard rock band, then we're on to something. That was the vision for the whole band. So we picked an R&B tune. And it stuck with us. And then Kaladin made us not only record it, but he made us release it as a single. And we fought it the whole way. They did. They brought in some... DJ who did a dance mix like we were CC Music Factory. I, I couldn't believe it. And he released it. The whole thing, I I we stood there scratching our heads going, we just wanted to be like Leonard Skinner meets ACTC meets Bad Company meets The Temptation. How the fuck did this happen? And the fights that we had about the mixes, because Bob was doing these mixes and it was like, you couldn't even hear any of the personality of the performances. There were four guitar parts going on at one time. You heard none of the none of the playing with personality. It was a sonic wall of sound. And after six months of recording it, and then three months of fighting back and forth over the mixes, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. Whatever. Release it. I, it's not even... It doesn't sound anything like we sound live. That's why you signed us. Why did we have to make a record like this? Well, because you got to get on radio and this and that. And I'm like, and, and again, I had this thing called my Benjamin Franklin theory. And me and John Kaladin wound up becoming enemies. And besides the blue murder thing, when I farted in church and said his song didn't sound very good, the other reason why he hated me was because I told him, listen, man, he, Benjamin Franklin didn't invent electricity. He just discovered. And you're trying to 
act like you invented us. You just discovered us. Just stay the fuck out of our way, man. Let us do what we do. Why did you hire us? Why did you ask, you know, you heard what we did. You heard our vision. You thought it was good enough to get a record deal. It was good enough to have Jimmy Iovine be our manager. It was good enough to get Bob Rock to come aboard. It was good enough to get your ass out of the office. Why are you trying to change it now? I don't understand. You know, and it was all of these fights and battles. And you combine that with all the other, I mean, our label manager got fired for masturbating on his secretary. You can't write this shit. You know? <laughs> it's like, you know, it was like an out-of-body experience. Three weeks into the release of the record, David Giffen sells the whole label. Our records are sitting in Warner Brothers warehouses and we're falling off the charts because people can't buy our record. It's not even available to be purchased just due to a warehouse problem. No one told us he was going to sell the label. Why that? Like, literally, as we're right in the middle of the big promotional push. And it's like, my life is spinal tap. This is all, and David Geffen and Jimmy Iovine is having a fight over Jimmy's new record label. So Jimmy's going to, you know, David's going to teach Jimmy a lesson by shelving us because he won't do the distribution of his new big record label. And I'm like, hello, we're he over here, you know, the band, remember <laughs> us? And all of this crap had happened in like a two-month period. And it was just everything, This and this was after doing the record, the whole problems with making the record. Wow. So it was kind of doomed just from the start. I mean, and we all knew it. I mean, the guys in the band, we were like, can you believe this? Everyone thinks that we're going to be bigger than Guns N' Roses because we got Jimmy Iovine and David Geffen and, and John Kaladner and Bob Rock. How could this fail? You know why? Kids don't give a fuck. If they don't hear this music, they can't buy the music. If yeah. the record doesn't have the personality of the band, it's going to sound like every other record. And then when you throw in all these battles of the egos and these little temper tantrums like sitting around and spending money, keeping ourselves alive for a year, waiting for Bob Rock because him and John Kaladner got into a fight over Blue Murder. What does that have to do with me and my career? You know? So all this shit, man, it was like, here's this grungy biker fucking band that just moved its own equipment. We never thought we were rock stars. None of that shit. We're just a blue-collar, humble you know, hey, we're glad you like our music, but we're not doing this to get laid. We're not doing this to get rich. We're doing this because we got to make music or we're going to die. And we love each other and we have fun doing it. We wrench on motorcycles and we think all those other bands look like fucking transvestites. And I can't look like a transvestite. I can't sing like that. I can't look like that. Let's put a crunchy fucking rock band together. And that was it. That was all we ever did. That's all we ever wanted to do. Just yeah. be a band of the people and be honest. And Everything else was just a clusterfuck. <laughs> you know, it's called the it, music. You had to laugh at it. It's, it's called the music. It's called the music business, Ron. It is, man, and that's yeah. the thing. There's way more stories like that than there ever Guns N' Roses stories or Nirvana stories. I mean, I I knew it was absurd. The guy that wound up getting fired for masturbating on the secretary while high on ecstasy and cocaine. I remember sitting in his office in New York right as the record was getting ready to come out. We were supposed to be on Geffen Records, but we wound up being on this little label called PGC, which was going to be their new label for new acts. And it was going to be three new acts to launch the label. It was going to be us. 
this band of these two cute little twins named Nelson and his exact words, and this little college indie band, and they'll be lucky if they do 30,000 records named Nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sitting here going, I listened to that Nirvana record, and I'm like, guys, there's a lot more going on here than you're giving this band credit for. Oh, no, dude, I don't know, I don't know who's going to play this record. It doesn't, it's too weird, and... It's an indie thing. It's like for it's weird. It's a college band, and I'm like, there's an energy going on here, man. I think is really going to connect, and that was neither here nor there. But the real thing was sitting there, and he's frustrated. He's like, "What would you do with this band?" I'm like, "Which one, the Nelson band?" He's like, "Yeah." He goes, "I can't get them. No radio station wants to play this track," and I'm like, "Well." Why are you even going to radio? When's the video coming out? Oh, they don't want to shoot a video. What do you mean they don't want to shoot a video? You have two guys. That, if, it, if I wasn't, if I was, I'd want to fuck both those guys. I mean, <laughs> are you kidding me? They're identical twins with snow white hair down to their ass, and you don't want to shoot a video? Yeah, because radio's not adding it. They don't want to take a chance wasting money on a video. I'm like, and so Nelson spent their own money making a video. Wow. Because the label wouldn't give it to him. Oh. And I'm like, play, get it on MTV. Radio is going to follow when they see, when the, when the phones are lighting up by every little girl in America wanting to see that video over and over again, radio is going to start playing it, whether they like it or they don't. And so it was things like that just made me go, wow, these guys don't have a clue. They don't have a clue if any of their music on the label and what they're doing with it. Wow. It was really kind of strange. So it was like those kind of things over and over and over again in like a two-year period that I was just like, wow, this music business thing is really, when they wrote Spinal Tap, they don't know how genius and brilliant it was. It was just day after day. Of, I mean, we had a publicist that was to bolster our image of being bad boys. Like when we went up to go, the day we pulled into town to go start working at Little Mountain, we had to go meet Bruce Allen up in his office. And we pull in and they won't let us through the front door. We're downstairs buzzing. Hi, little Caesar, we're here from LA. And it literally was like three minutes before they let us in the building. And we get in and we see these like secretaries locking themselves in offices. And we're like, this is kind of weird. What's going on? And we go into Bruce's office and he's there with a, with a cricket bat. He's sitting there with a cricket bat in his lap going, okay, guys, good to have you here, but let me just let me tell you how it's going to be. You're, you're in my town now. And there's none of this. There'll be no smacking women around, no shooting heroin, none of this fucking crap. And we're like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> and he's like, well, Bryn Bryan's a fault. You know, the head of publicity down in LA told me, this is, what, this is what you guys are about. You're the real fucking deal. And I was like, these two guys have kids. I was a biology major in college. I've got a borderline genius IQ. I've never hit a woman in my life. I like a motorcycle. I like to look greasy and grimy because I don't look like these fucking fags in their fucking teased up hair. <laughs> Whatever. That's just not my thing. I don't, I, I don't like to look like... I, so I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, we, we, we can drink a bit. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But there's none of this shit. I don't know. She was out there telling people that I beat women, that I was really crazy, and that I was prone to violence, and 
I'm like the biggest pussy on the planet, you know? Yeah. It was really weird, man. And this is not even, this is not even for press. This is like, you know, Bruce Allen, one of the biggest guys in the world. It's like the Canadian music business between Brian Adams and Bob Rock and all these people and all these acts that he managed. And this is the guy I got to sit in a room with and he thinks that I'm this bullshit thing that the publicist told him I was. And he's sitting there with a cricket bat in his lap like he's going to intimidate me into being well-behaved. You know, really weird shit, man. Yeah. Well, obviously you've done something right, Ron, because uh, you're still around making music, and um, the new album Mate is is excellent. So, do, well, do you want, thank you, man. Do you want to give out all the social media sites where uh, people can get in touch with you and the band? Yes, it's Little Caesar Official. I think it is on Facebook. I really appreciate people like it. We don't. We never bought likes. We never did any of that BS. Our fans are real and they're organic. So. If you hear any of this record and if you like anything that you've heard or the attitude and look us up and like us, we don't spam people. We don't jam stuff, you know, stuff down their throat. We have our website, littlecaesar.net, but we don't really update that much. It's really Facebook. Yeah. And, you know, for anybody listening, you know, we're just an honest, straight-ahead rock and roll band. There's, there's nothing going on with us that's smoke and mirrors. The music speaks to you and it doesn't. And if it doesn't, that's okay. And if it does... You know, you have a band that appreciates you. Well, Ron, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and thanks for giving me so you much too, of your man. time. And uh, sure, my pleasure, man. Thanks for asking great questions and yeah. being you, you're not one of those typical guys, you know. No, no, we we. Yeah, hey, no. What was they, what was this like? And what, about the band, yeah. What was this like, it. and what was that like, and all that? I don't go in for that shit. Yeah. Yeah. So well, I pre- I really appreciate it and thanks for the support, man. Really yep. appreciate it. No problem, Ron. Have a good rest of the night. Thanks, man. You okay. too. Bye. Bye. All right, there you go. There's Richie's conversation with Ron Young of Little Caesar. And of course, if you want to find out more about those guys, head up to littlecaesar.net, as he said. And if you scroll way down the bottom of that page, there's a link to their Facebook page. So there you go. That link will get you to everywhere you need to go. And obviously this week, you know, uh, compressed time, lots of talk with Ron. So that kind of uh, eased out on uh, some sampling of the music off of 8. But uh, we have you covered there is uh, we'll put up a couple of samples on the uh, show notes over at focusonmetal.blogspot.com. As always, we try to keep it covered. So that will do it for this week. And as I mentioned earlier in the episode, next week, we've got uh, Michael Sweet coming back on the show once again. Michael's uh, definitely earning his frequent flyer miles here at Focus on Metal. Probably one of our most frequent guests as he comes on board to talk about the brand new Striper release that is due out this Friday called Goddamn Evil and also coming out on on Friday is uh, Gus G's album Fearless and we are going to have Gus on board talking all about that one but uh, for this week you know that's it there ain't no more stick a fork in it this puppy is done make sure you keep up with us at focusonmetal.blogspot.com and also at focusonmetal.net and of course the old Facebook Twitter you guys know the drill but uh, anyways for Richie myself and everybody else here at Focus on Metal as always have yourselves a great metal week and until we talk to you again next week remember Focus on Metal everything else is insignificant Uh.
over. Go home.